Is everybody in? Is everybody in? The show is about to begin. Hey, welcome to another episode of Concerts That Made Us. I'm your host Brian and I'm here to guide you through the next hour of concert experiences. But before we get into it, rate and review us on iTunes and find us and follow us on social media. Just search for Concerts That Made Us. Now, my guest this week is Ivan Bodley, aka Funk Boy. But before we get talking to Ivan, we're going to take a listen to some of his music. So, without further ado, let's get on with the show. Thank you. 
Hi, Ivan. You're very welcome to Concerts That Made Us this evening. Man, thanks for having me. This is going to be fun. It is. It is. I'm uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing your concert stories now. I bet you've got some great ones. I got a few. <laughs> I got a lot, yeah. <laughs> so before we get into it, would you like to tell the listeners a bit about yourself? Oh, sure. Why not? My name is Ivan Bodley. Some people call me the funk boy. I'm a freelance, uh, full-time professional musician based out of New York City, New York. Uh, I've been uh, looking at the business end of a Fender bass for about um, 30 years full-time now and probably about 40 years, uh, you know, since I'm uh, in high school kind of thing. Um, I, I haven't had a day job in, in, since 1995, so uh, something must be working out. I keep paying the rent with it. I, I managed to buy an apartment in Queens, if you can imagine that, Jeez. Uh, based on proceeds just from uh, uh, playing uh, weddings and funerals and bar mitzvahs from... Uh, <laughs> here to here to the to the Orient and back. Um, I've worked with uh, I guess the tagline in my in my bio is I, I, I've performed with 50 inductees into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, I've appeared as a substitute player on stage in uh, 12 different Broadway musicals. Um, I'm a Blues Hall of Fame inductee here in New York and uh, I, I enjoy what I do. I enjoy concerts from being in them and from uh, consuming them, being in front of them, both. That's that's uh, one of the most impressive intros I've had now on the show so far. That's if I a... do say so myself, that's kind of real, right? <laughs> How do you fit so much into one lifetime so far? Oh, boy. Uh, you know... It's one foot in front of the other. It's just like when you've been doing it. I mean, literally, it's it's. I graduated music school thirty years ago uh, next year, so it's just sort of like one gig after another. And I've been averaging. Um, I think my my this year accepted. You know, the the shutdown year accepted. I think my my annual average for performances was about two hundred and sixty five per year. So, you know, in that period of time, it, it starts to add up, you know, and then, you know, as a freelancer, you're constantly working with, with different people. So, you know, the resume keeps getting longer and longer and longer. And, you know, it's so far, I get, like I say, every, at the end of every calendar year, I, I look back and I go, well, I fooled them again. I don't know how, but uh, I'm afraid they're going to find me as an imposter any time now and just kick me out of the union or whatever, you know. <laughs> And you've uh, you decided to put some of your great stories down on paper this year, didn't you? You've got a book out. I did. I did. It's called uh, Am I Famous Yet? <laughs> a memoir of a working class rock star, because that's what I consider myself to be. I'm very much a working class rock star. I've, I've done a lot of famousy kind of stuff, but I don't think I'm particularly famous myself. Uh, yeah, so... Uh, it just, there's so many stories that I've, I've been telling over the years, like anything that would happen that was sort of untoward on a gig backstage or, you know, or at, at dinner break between soundcheck and the show would always remind me of something else that happened that was even more outrageous on another gig. So I would start telling these stories backstage Yeah. and, you know, some of my compatriots were like, you know, you need to write these things down. <laughs> Um, and I did, I started to write them down about probably about four years ago. I started this thing and then, you know, uh, the pandemic was a great excuse to finally get it finished, get it published, get it out, get the whole thing. And the response has been just, just lovely, you know, really good support. Brilliant. Brilliant. I've had a, a chance to read through some of it myself now and it's, uh, 
once you start, you can't put it down, especially if you're a music lover. You just yeah, yeah. you want to get to the end of it, you know? There's a lot of inside baseball kind of stories and a lot of things that, you know, music lovers, you know, it's things like you wouldn't believe if you didn't actually know it to be true sort of thing. Like you, it's hard to imagine how these things actually happen. Uh, and then, you know, I think a lot of the, the general public doesn't understand sort of the daily machinations we have to go through to sort of, you know, get a concert up, get a show up in front of punters. You know, it takes... A lot, a lot of traveling and moving, you know, to get it, yeah. to get it going. Yeah, yeah, I could imagine. I could imagine. So, um, we'll move on to your music tastes. Hmm. How would you describe your music taste as a consumer? Uh, a very eclectic, because I really, truly enjoy a huge range of music. Um, my iTunes library now has over 125,000 tracks in it at the moment. Uh, I'm a voracious collector of music, of recorded music. And that's kind of what started me on the entire path, even into being a professional musician was like, we started as record collecting, vinyl collecting way, way back. I've since given up with the vinyl. The only vinyl that I kept are like the autographed ones that I have from like my college radio station days when I, in very early days, when I would interview like the Ramones, I would get them to sign. So I have an autographed Ramones album. I have an autographed Red Hot Chili Peppers album. I have an autographed like R.E.M., Jaco Pastoria, Stanley Clark, all these people. So I kept, you know, a handful of, of, of autographed vinyl, but the rest of it, since I decided to go ahead and make the jump to digital, you know, I, I concentrate in classic soul and funk music. That's sort of like my primary... Uh, bailiwick if you will but there's a whole lot of jazz recorded at van gelder studios in uh inglewood cliffs you know the blue notes mm -hmm. era stuff from the 50s and 60s i just can't possibly get enough of it you know and then uh, literally I, I i enjoy country music i enjoy classical music i enjoy jazz r&b funk you know like i i listen to it actively um so I have my areas of specialization, but I have my interests that really span, you know, the, literally the globe, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think once you're a musician yourself, you kind of, you're open to every genre, really. There's not much you'll turn away from. You oh, know? I agree with that a hundred percent. And I think it was uh, Duke Ellington who said there are only two kinds of music, good and bad. <laughs> true. True. You know? <laughs> And that resonated with me very deeply. And I was like, yes, because there are fine, you can tell if somebody's got something to say, regardless of the genre that they're trying to say it in, you know? Mm, yeah. You mentioned uh, moving your, your music to digital. Would, you wouldn't be one of these people then that think vinyl sounds better. I love vinyl and I do think it sounds better. However, uh, I was alive and awake and in the world when there was an invention that came out called the Sony Walkman, <laughs> which was a cassette player with these ultralight headphones. And I remember first hearing that thing and I just thought it was a revolution. This is amazing. It's like walking around with a hi-fi strapped to your head. I didn't think anything could possibly sound better. And sort of in my travels and, and dealing with like recording engineers, I learned a couple of things like sort of any MP3 sampling rate that's over like 192 um, um, is, is really the, is almost imperceptible to the human ear to make it sound better. And mm. the sampling rate 
of uh, a standard sort of MP3 sounds better than, has more audio information available than in the original Sony cassette Walkman. So once I heard that, I'm like, oh, well, I thought that thing sounded great. So I'm good. <laughs> you know, everything's fine. And now I swear I see people all the time with, with a smartphone held to their head listening to something out of this, you know, tiny speaker in the, in the, in the, in the tail of it, which takes us all the way back to like the transistor radio days, you know, <laughs> when you used to hold the thing to your head, like the same audio quality, it sounds awful, but people enjoy music, you know, even with that, because it's, it's their jam man. you got to hear your jam, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I couldn't agree more. So, um, what was the first record single or album you purchased? Oh, I remember them both, and I can tell you exactly. The first 45 RPM I, I bought was uh, Sly and the Family Stone, If You Want Me to Stay. The oh, wow. B-side was Babies Making Babies, which <laughs> I think at, at probably age 10, I did not understand the concept of that uh, uh, sentiment. Uh, but the groove was so infectious, you know, I just was immediately drawn to it. And then the first LP I bought was the Jackson 5's Greatest Hits. So that would have been um, early 70s sometimes, you know, because they, they started out in 69, 70, 71, 72. They were really like at the top of the chart. So I, I would imagine the greatest hits package might have been around the 72 era kind of thing. Mm. Uh, and I was a big fan of the Motown stuff. Uh, my mother's record collection was very influential on me. She was a big Gladys Knight and the Pips fan. Oh. So she had Gladys records. She had Stevie Wonder records. She had... Uh, I can Tina live at, at Carnegie Hall. That was a big one. Uh, then she ha would have like some Beatles and Stones kind of things as well. And a lot of show tune records like Broadway kind of stuff. But the, the R&B, the soul records I took to immediately and especially the early Motown stuff. So um, it, it would prove to follow my entire career, you know, my entire life. Yeah. I've still been making most of my money playing with Motown and Stax related recording artist to this day she um she really set you up properly for the future so absolutely and without realizing it you know there was no agenda on her part she does just the records that she liked and and the, but the funny thing about her the um she liked greatest hits records greatest hits packages because you know there were all good songs on them whereas occasionally if you liked you know one single off the radio then the lp would be some filler that would kind of disappoint her so yeah. she knew a greatest hits package was always good value for, for money <laughs> Sounds like a smart lady. Absolutely. And um, the first uh, the first concert you ever attended. Oh, this is this is a good story, but it could be a better story. Right. Because what happened was the first concert I attended, I think I was seven years old, and I went to go see Donny Osmond and the Osmond Brothers. Right. Play at uh, the local college, and the and the the opening act was. Uh, let me get this name wrong. It's Bo, Bo Donaldson and the Haywoods. They had the big hit was Billy, Don't Be a Hero. Don't be a fool with your life. Come back and make me your wife is the, <laughs> the lyric. It was a really odd thing. So in my mind, in my seven-year-old brain, the, uh, the Osmond brothers and the Jackson Five were kind of the same thing to me. It was like a, you know, a, a prepubescent lead singer, uh, kind of soul pop sort of oriented kind of thing. So I didn't, I wasn't sort of like... Uh, racially or or sociologically hip enough to know that there was a gigantic difference because in my world you know music was music kind of thing uh so the first 
And I and I and I, I later met Donny Osmond when I worked at the record label. He came up to the, I think the label was courting him at the time, Epic Records, and I, I was able to tell him. I said, "Listen, man, you were the first concert I ever saw." He's like, "Get out of here! Come on, man!" I was like, <laughs> "But the reason why the the story could be even hipper was because very shortly before that, um, my mother had asked me. She knew I was a big fan of the I can Carnegie Hall record, right? Because I mm. would play her in, in the house." So Ike and Tina were coming to Chattanooga, Tennessee, where I grew up. And she said, do you want to go see Ike and Tina Turner? And I said, nah. Oh, man. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't feeling, I didn't know. Like my first concert story could have been so much hipper than it was. Like, yeah, Ike and Tina, man. <laughs> no, it's the Osmond brothers. That's my first concert experience. Well, it's, it's still an experience. Yeah. <laughs> Without a doubt. And I saw many, many, many hipper, hipper shows after that. But, you know, and I don't fault the Osmonds. I thought they were great. I think Merrill Osmond is one of the great rock singers of, of our age, believe it or not. You know, and I was yeah. a big fan of that, of that genre at that time, you know. Yeah, yeah. I suppose back then and, you know, you were the perfect age. There were very uh, teeny boppers, so to speak. Exactly. You know, they were uh, targeting kids, teenagers, that genre. So, yeah, uh, Michael Jackson and Donny Osmond were both just slightly older than me, you know, and as a kid, you, when you see a kid fronting a, a huge pop act, you're like, wow, that kind of gives you a sense of, of place in the world. Like, maybe I could do that, you know. Yeah. No, I can't, but, you know, <laughs> you can identify it with it, you know. Yeah, yeah. Who would, uh, who would the performer have been that you looked at and thought, I want to do that, I want to be a musician? I can tell you exactly, because I have very specific memories of that, too. Uh, there's a couple of things. One, I saw Rick James on a, an American television show called The Midnight Special. And back in the late 70s, early 80s, there was very little uh, opportunity to see live music on television. It was before MTV. Mm. So there were two shows that would come on on the weekend, three shows, really. Uh, Don Kirshner's Rock Concert was one of them. The Midnight Special hosted by Wolfman Jack, the DJ, right? And then occasionally you'd see a band do a song or two on Saturday Night Live. And that was pretty much it. Like, you know, the uh, very few uh, opportunities to see live music. So Rick James played on the Midnight Special, and he had a single out at the time called You and I. And it was just sort of this ostinato bass line was like down, and it's just this four notes that kept repeating, repeating on only two strings of the bass. And a friend of mine who I was going to high school with had a had a a, um, a bass in his dorm room that only had two strings on it. It only had the E string and the A string on it. <laughs> and I was able to pick out that bass line just on this bass that only had two strings on it. And I was like. I, and it, it immediately sort of started coming to me. I was like, oh, this might be a thing. This might be something I could actually do. Mm. Uh, and I remember being heavily influenced by that. Um, I also saw uh, the band Mother's Finest, if you know those guys. Um, they're oh, they're celebrating, I think they're celebrating their 50th or 50th, 51st anniversary this year. Um, they were a, they kind of invented the genre of funk rock in the 70s. It was a prim primarily uh, African-American band, but also mixed race. Actually, the, that's not true. The drummer and, and, the, and the keyboard, and the drummer and the guitar player were both, both white cats. So what they did was they kind of combined, they were famously sort of combined, a Led Zeppelin riff, uh, which is called Custard Pie, you know, and they, and, but they sang uh, Smoking in the Miracles, Mickey's Monkey, over the Zeppelin riff. 
So if you can imagine these worlds colliding, and I saw them in Chattanooga opening for the Atlanta Rhythm Section, who I I love. They were big sort of FM radio kind of, you know, standard. But but, uh, Mother's Finest, I knew them some from the radio, but I had never seen a show. When I saw the show, they blew the, the headliner off the stage as far as I was concerned. And at that time, I had just started to play the bass, you know, just kind of started to fool around with it. And I remember seeing their bass player, Wizard, playing, and I was like, I don't know what these guys are doing, but I want to do that. <laughs> like, it was so heavy and funky and rhythmic and soulful, and it was just beautiful. And in and later years, in recent years, I finally have gotten to work to collaborate with a recording with Moses Moe, who is the guitar player from that band. So it was kind of like this life sort of full circle moments. I played on some of his recordings. He's played on some of my recordings and, you know. I just, it's hard for me not to fan out on them every time I see him. You know, it's like, I can oh, imagine. Man, you were like the first guy I ever saw, man. It was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> How does he feel about that? Does it ever get old here enough, do you think? I, I don't think so. I think, you know, uh, he knows he's been around a long time and he's, he's, he's influenced a lot of people, you know, like that band really went through a period of time where they were quite famous in like, the United States on FM radio and also like in, in Europe in uh, they were on that show rock palace in, in Germany. Mm. And, uh, so like I have some German and Austrian friends who like worship mother's finest because they were <laughs> huge in the seventies, you know, kind of thing. And they're still doing it. They're still touring and still rocking. So and Mo, Mo is a friend, but he's also like, you know, a hero as well. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. That's a, that's a great, a uh, great thing to be able to say. One of your heroes is a friend as well. Yeah, it's, I've I've been very lucky. I've, I've made friends with a, a few of my my dear heroes. Stanley Clark is another one. A friend with Stanley for thirty five years now, and <clears throat> um, Sam Moore from Sam and Dave. You know, I was yeah. his music director for thirteen years. So not only is my huge fan, but he's like a second dad to me. You know, <laughs> uh, Shirley Alston Reeves from the Shirelles. You know, I've been touring with Shirley on and off for twenty seven years. So. She's like a second mom to me. I call her, you know, for Mother's Day and call her for her birthday and all that kind of stuff. You know, it's like, it's, it's a, sometimes you don't want to meet your heroes, you know, Mm. but, but other times it just can be lovely because once you sort of get past the fan uh, icon dynamic, you know, they're just people. And and if you have opportunity to actually work with them over time, you know, it can be a really lovely relationship. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. What was the, uh, what was the next stage then in your musical career from you say your first concert to playing your your first concert did you go to music school did you form garage bands with friends what was the next the next thing you did uh first thing we did was we started a band in high school there was a a a springtime high school talent show uh at my school that every year and I really, I started playing bass in the fall of my senior year. And by the spring of my senior year, when the talent show was, I was in three bands because they needed bass players. So we went up uh, in front of a gymnasium full. This is an, uh, keep in mind, this is an all boys preparatory school, like what you guys would call a a public school, I think, you know? Yeah. Um, And it was sort of like 600 kids who actively just hated me as a as a person as a personality i was not a popular kid at all you know i was the weird one i wasn't athletic i wasn't a team player i wasn't into sports uh, none of that kind of stuff so like i was doing plays in the theater and 
But, and then we played these, these songs. We played uh, police covers and, and uh, Stones covers and Rush covers in front of these. And these kids like were ballistic. They loved it. <laughs> I was like, are these, yes. do, do they like me now? Like what happened? It was a, it was a very sudden, uh, <laughs> very sudden shift of fortune, you know? <laughs> and I, I even talk about it in the book a little bit. Like I think sort of part of me has been kind of been chasing that sort of level of acceptance, like ever since, like, how do I get to that back to that? Or, you know, how do I replicate that sort of level of, of, of really adoration fandom, you know? Yeah. A lot of it had to do with high school kids being allowed to be loud, you know, just being in the gym and being allowed to make noise. But still, you know, it feels good when you're on the receiving end of that noise. Yeah. If, if it's positive, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Especially as you said, you weren't uh, one of the popular kids. So then when, yeah. you know, they turn around, they love you. You won them yeah. over with the music. Uh, amazing. It, instant reversal of fortune, you know, and I think it lasted about two days, of course, because then, you know, they went back to, to <laughs> trying to beat me up like the week after that. But the rest of my life sort of is spent on, on stage trying to chase that thing. And then I did not go straight to music school. No, because I, I just started playing as a senior in high school. So I went to engineering school down in New Orleans, really. I was like a biomedical engineering major nice. for two years. And then I ended up switching into, I got a psychology degree. But mostly what I was doing in New Orleans was majoring in college radio. I was at my campus radio station. I was the music director of that station. So that's how I met all the people who came through town uh, that were promoting shows. And I would interview them on the air. And that's why I have the autograph records that I mentioned earlier. Uh, so my music studies were 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 autodidactic at that point. I was self-taught and I was, uh, I don't even think I was taking lessons anymore when I went to school, but I was going to see, and this is again, seeing concerts. I went to go see the Neville Brothers Band about once a month because they were always playing around at Tipitina's or Jimmy's uh, or other clubs in town. It was just, it was such an unbelievably great experience to to see them. So I kind of studied at their feet, like watching them, listening to them, uh, at the meters, when the meters would reunite and play, you know, I would I would study at the feet of George Porter Jr. I'm just looking up at him. And I'm I'm stealing all of your licks. Everything <laughs> you're playing now is going right into the computer, and it's going to become my vocabulary from <laughs> now on. And and I was thinking, I'm wearing my Neville, Neville shirt now. I don't know if you can see it. It's my Neville brother's shirt. Oh, oh, cool, cool. But like, so it was the kind of thing. And I was no, uh, believe me when I say this, I was no. Romeo in college at all. It was no kind of like, you know, uh, dating athlete at all. But I do remember the few times that I actually would take a date to go see the Neville Brothers band because of the dancing and the, I don't know, the groove or the vibe or something. There was always going to be some kind of physical contact after the show. It just, it just I don't know. They were like, this band was like an aphrodisiac on top of the fact <laughs> that I just love them anyway, you know. Yeah. Uh, and Aaron Neville just turned 80 years old um, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, uh, he's a friend of mine. He's a pal. Like, you know, he, he gets in touch with me on Facebook Messenger just about every day with a, a Jesus prayer or a dirty joke or <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, oh man, that's amazing. That is amazing. We'll go ahead to your very first concert that you played. So, all right. Well, so the first thing I did was was the uh, the high school talent show. That was kind of the first thing up in front of people. Then when I went to New Orleans, I started working in uh, some original bands. So we would play sort of the general nightclub circuit uh, mm-hmm. around. But the first kind of legitimate thing that I did was I got a job backing up uh, in a pickup band, uh, Bo Diddley. 
Bo came through right. New Orleans like three different times during that period. And he was just traveling by himself. So he was using local bands wherever he was going. Uh, and at the time I was, I think I was dating the, the booking agent and I was like, listen, you, you got to get me on this gig if it's possible. So I had to go audition for the gig. But the thing about Bo, uh, his music, uh, um, harmonically is very simple. Most of his songs are like one chord each and right. he plays the guitar with an open E tuning. Uh, so you know what the rehearsal involved was if he puts a capo on the third fret, you're in G. If he puts a capo on the fifth fret, you're in A. And if there's no capo, you're, you're, capo, you're in E. End of rehearsal. That was it. <laughs> That's all you needed to know. And, you know, you need to have sort of kind of a reasonable feel. So I was able to kind of go bump, she bump, she bump, bump, bump all night. Mm. He played a 90 minute show of these one chord songs. And it was amazing. He was never boring for a second. It was entertaining. He was a great showman. He was a, a huge personality. And I got to do it like three different times when he came through town. So that was like, uh, he wasn't in the Hall of Fame yet, but he became the first Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, who I was able to claim as such, having backed up. You know. Yeah, geez, that's a that really marks you out as a legend. Now, if you can play a one chord song and not be boring, you know, you can still <laughs> be entertaining. I've never seen anybody do it before or since. Like he's the yeah. only guy I knew that could do that, and and it was. You know, for me as a sideman trying to survive the gig, I was happy. I'm like, great. I only have one chord to worry about. I don't have the chord changes. Like, I'm not trying to second guess anything. <laughs> but then sort of as you're looking back at it as an audience member, I was like, that was a 90-minute show of one chord songs that were fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. It was amazing. Like in recent years, there's a, there's people on the internet giving out that most pop songs nowadays are just the same three chords. Right. You could probably play all yeah, yeah. of them if you know three chords. Yeah. Imagine if uh, someone came out with a one chord song nowadays to lose their minds. <laughs> <laughs> there's so few and far between, but they happen once in a while. Like there's this a thing that'll just kind of be this one sort of jam that'll just sit in this one. Uh, there's a famous one. Um, uh, Sonny and Cher, and the beat goes on, la di da di. It's one chord, C. Da 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 da. -da. That's the whole song, one chord. <laughs> you know. And now, what I think about it now, what what's more likely to happen is if it's kind of a um, a hip hop sample. Mm. So they'll take a sample and it just kind of be a groove and a bass line, and it's basically like one piece that repeats over and over again. So then, you know, what you're saying has to become the thing. You yeah, know, and you really need to have some routines. You need to have some rhymes down to, to <laughs> sort of make a one chord production sound like it's going somewhere, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. We'll fast forward a bit. The last gig you played, so. <laughs> <laughs> last gig, well, you know, again, we have to fast forward. Through, we just came through, uh, through COVID time. So what happened over here was uh, basically June 1st it was like a light switch went on and all the private party work that had been silent for 15 months suddenly came back. So mm -hmm. I've been playing uh, private parties. I've been playing weddings, dinner dances. I say weddings, funerals, and bar mitzvahs. That's sort of my running joke of what I do. You know, so yeah, since June 1st, I've been every every Saturday and some, some weekends. So last Saturday, I did Saturday and Sunday. I did uh, two weddings. So it's all function band, private party bands. Uh, in New York, they call them club dates. In uh, Boston, same the same band. And I know in London, they call function bands. In uh, Boston, they call them general business bands. Right. Uh, in 
in LA, I think they, and in Nashville, they call them formal gigs. And then in LA, they call them casual gigs, same gigs, <laughs> but they just have like a different nomenclature in the different parts of town. So yeah, yeah, I spent, you know, he's like, you do an hour cocktail hour and then you do like, uh, you do the first dance and the uh, parent dances and then you do like some dinner music. And then the last two hours is like, bang, 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 mm. bang, you know, trying yeah. to keep the dance floor filled for two hours. So there's no, <laughs> there are no endings. Like everything is one long medley for the entire night you know you really need to be on point for that so it must have been pretty amazing and refreshing to be able to get back out on stage again after such a long time with no music unbelievable i mean i've been recording and practicing at home sort of all through the lockdown to try to keep myself sane but yeah to sort of oh and i had three or four gigs like over the year like spread out every two three months or something a gig would happen and, and you'd play and you kind of be be reminded like oh yeah we used to know how to do this <laughs> i used to do it five nights a week and now the biggest thing was sort of like re reclaiming your stamina because these gigs you know especially the function gigs the wedding gigs yeah typically four to five hours so you really Jeez. have to like, you know, make sure your back is strong, <laughs> make sure you're well hydrated, you know, that all that kind of stuff. So yeah. I, I felt pretty good about it. Uh, I, it's funny sort of seeing sort of my other compatriots as they come back, because some of them didn't play much over the last 15 months. Mm. So you can see them by the end of four hours, they're hurting, they're sore. Everything <laughs> they need to go to a, a chiropractor the next day, yeah. I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you'd imagine standing with, you know, a bass guitar is about a 10 pound piece of lumber strapped to your stomach, you know, so you can imagine what that does to your posture after five hours, you know, yeah. much less your shoulder, your traps. Like I got one trapezoid muscle on my left side is like much bigger than my right because I, <laughs> I hold up the guitar on that side, you know. <laughs> yeah, you're going to feel it after a, after a couple of hours if you're oh, not yeah. used to it. When you're uh, playing these, these gigs, do you prefer smaller audiences are a massive audience what are you more comfortable with i i'm fine either way uh i i have a sort of uh not a mantra a credo i guess uh, you know and i've sp spoken about this with several of my my compatriots and associates and colleagues we play every gig as if we're playing madison square garden mm. and by that i don't think that we're, we mean that we're playing to the rafters you know but we're trying to bring our a-game to whatever it is yeah. so even if it's you know a, a, a duo gig in a restaurant and you're being ignored by all but one table or something you know you still want to play to the best of your ability and you also want to interact with your, uh, your your musician, your music partner as much as possible. So what I'm into is anytime the audience and the band are sort of in synergy, like we're on the same page, they're enjoying us, we're enjoying them. And that can happen at a wedding, it can happen at a restaurant, it can happen in Madison Square Garden. And the opposite is true. It cannot happen at Madison Square Garden. You can walk out and just be, you know, universally loathed and, and hated. Um, so it, it's a little bit of a, of a, of a crapshoot every time you go out, but the more experience you have and the more you surround yourself with people who also have similar experience and abilities, the, the more often you're going to be able to at least, you know, uh, um, have a B plus evening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> at worst, you know? <laughs> yeah. This will, um, this will bring us nicely onto what's the worst experience you've ever had while playing a gig 
Oh boy. Oh boy. Well, I, I'm, I'll defer this on, uh, slightly to, uh, to somebody else's gig first, because okay. the, the worst thing I've ever seen on stage happened to the punk band, the exploited. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but you know, they're very famous mostly for their logo. Right. So it's a skull with a mohawk in profile, right? That says the exploited underneath. And there's every kid who was ever a punk rocker has had like an exploited patch on their jeans or their jacket. You know what I mean? Like mm. the, I think more people have seen the logo than have ever heard the band. Right? <laughs> so right. somewhere in the, I'm going to say mid 1980s. And this was sort of in my college radio days when I was attending a lot of punk rock shows. I was, I was even having a hosting a punk rock uh, a radio show at the time as well. Um, I saw, went to the Ritz in New York City, which is a, uh, a classic old concert venue that holds, eh, I don't know, 1,500 people, something like that. And the opening act was somebody like Murphy's Law or Black Flag or somebody, you know, one of these really speedy American hardcore bands. You're just yeah. like, you know, <laughs> high energy, people stage diving. It was the whole thing. So the Exploited at that point in their life had decided that their, the album that they were promoting was kind of a, almost like dirge-like heavy metal sounding. It was like, gong, 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 gong. It was really heavy and dark and menacing, but it was nothing like, you know, the super fast punk rock stuff that the crowd had just witnessed before and probably was expecting from this band from England. Yeah. They were excited to see. <laughs> so slowly just piece by piece, like suddenly like somebody would wad up a plastic cup that they'd just finished their beer in and, and like toss it on the stage. Right. And then like, it was like a rainstorm starting. It was like one drop <laughs> and then two drops and then three drops. And finally the band is getting pelted by rocks and garbage. It's just like, oh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hailstorm of crap coming <laughs> up. And at one point a full beer catches the singer right in the face. It's like, oh. and he's like, whoa and it shook him and he's like okay all right and the, but they're pressing on they're mm. only they're only three songs in the set oh, like no. you know and it's, it's going <laughs> it's just it's the worst possible thing and finally a full beer landed on the guitar player's effects pedals and oh. just shorted it out it was just like you know the guitar just went done thank you good night <laughs> And they just slunked off stage, you know, literally pelted by rocks and garbage and full beers. Like I've never seen a before or since a band physically booed off stage. Like you have to yeah. go now. I know we paid to get in here, but we <laughs> want you to go. You're the headliner. You have to go away. <laughs> you know, yeah. it was, it was amazing. I was, I was shocked and amused, highly amused to witness it. I didn't have to throw anything. I was just like, this is great. This is fun. <laughs> Sit back with your popcorn. <laughs> oh, it was great. It was fantastic. As far as myself, my own worst experience on stage, ugh, that is so hard to say because it's been so many, you know, uh, uh, nice. there's innumerable gigs where you've just been either somewhere between ignored or just physically loathed and paid to go home like the band's too loud here's your money get out of here right um i there's a story i tell in the book like you know sort of the there's a chapter called what's your worst nightmare like what would happen on stage to sort of really embarrass you mm -hmm. um the first time i subbed um on the broadway show hedwig and the angry inch um the band is on stage there everything is memorized we had some stage business to do we had some choreography to do 
Uh, we had a couple of lines. I was singing a bunch of parts. You know, it was it was only about nine or ten songs, I think, but but it was a lot that went into it. You know, so it was a lot of pressure. And, you know, you still have to play it cool, look like you know what you're doing. And they, the costume I was wearing, they kind of dressed me up to look like Joey Ramone with a leather jacket with the badges on the lapels and the whole thing. Right. And I'm wearing aviator glasses. And I'm wearing a, um, I had a necklace on that is, it's a, a, a um, um, what is it? Pewter, a silver, like uh, um, uh, 45 adapter. You know that center adapter that goes in the 45, that little oh, spiral yeah. looking thing? That was yeah. the pendant. I was wearing a pendant that had that on it. So toward the end of the show, there's a quote-unquote mosh pit scene where the, the strobe light's going on, and my job was to go, there's a little mark on the stage, a little piece of tape, so my twist to you know, put my heels on that mark and face away from the Yitzhak character while I'm playing. So Yitzhak is like, she is uh, played by Lena Hall at the time, her job was to run into me like full force, like like a slam dance sort of thing, but it's choreographed. So no, so a I could keep playing my bass, and b so she she wouldn't get hurt, you know. So I don't know. She must weigh ninety pounds, soaking wet. So she just like rams into me as hard as she can. I'm just kind of like okay, whatever. But sort of in somewhere in the fray, the the metal pendant, the pendant I was wearing was on a metal chain. It got wrapped around one of the badges on the lapel of the jacket. Right. Right. I didn't know this at the time. Not a problem. At the end of the show, my instructions are to put the bass down on the stand, walk up to the front of the stage with the cast, take a bow, go home. That's my instruction. So I've completed the show, and I go to take the bass off, and because the, 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 the pendant is locked around the badge, the strap of the bass is now physically locked to my body. I oh, can't no. get the bass off. I can't <laughs> put down the guitar to complete the show. So... And I tried to pull the strap off of the strap button and pull it down away from me. And what it was doing was I, I was wearing in-ear monitors, which have a cable on them. So it, that was getting tight, tangled in my hair with the, oh, with man. the So as I'm pulling it down, it's, it's tightening this knot. So like I'm, I'm, I'm making it much worse. I cannot get off stage. And also the bass, the other thing you have to know is the bass is, uh, on, it's not a wireless situation. So it's hardwired to the rig. Hmm. So I can't, I can't leave. I, I'm like... Uh, so this is there's a thousand people standing, you know, in, with standing ovation, looking at me like, "What are you oh, doing? Man. Can we go home now?" <laughs> you know, the whole band is looking at me like, you know, this is taking an extraordinarily long period of time. You know, and finally the music director said, "Just bring the bass. Come over, bring the bass." <laughs> so I just kind of walked, slumped over with the bass, and he reached around. I didn't think of this. He reached around and unplugged the bass and set me free, so at least I could exit the stage in my shame, you know. But it was like when we when we got off stage, we always do an after show huddle, and uh, um, um, John Cameron Mitchell, the star who wrote the show, he just looked at me and said, "Now that's rock and roll, man." I was like, "Yeah, okay, thanks." <laughs> <laughs> they thought it was funny, and by the time I got to the stage door. Uh, my girlfriend was coming to pick me up after the show and she had seen somebody who'd came out, had just come out of the show. And he said, she said, Oh, I'm here to pick up my boyfriend. He just played bass in the show. He said, Oh, did you hear what happened? <laughs> like by the time I'd already gotten to the street, like the, the, the incident had preceded me out to the, to 44th street. So I already like, Oh man. <laughs> so, I mean, oh. that was sort of my greatest public embarrassment. I wasn't too broken up about it because you know, what are you going to do? Uh, mm. But it, it, it was potentially could have been something that would have undone someone with lesser experience. You just would have gone home and cried all night. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I could imagine. Jeez, it's one of the things though. You have to, 
You have to see the, the lighter side of it and take it in your stride, don't you? 100%, 100%. And the cast really were amused by it because it was like, you know, it wasn't their problem, it was mm. my problem. And, and I learned a very important lesson, which is never to wear that pendant again during that show. So <laughs> I did the show probably eight or nine more times without the necklace and everything was fine. No problem. Yeah. Life yeah. lessons learned, you know. <laughs> How did you actually get into doing shows like that? Uh, funnily enough, it came to find me, a friend of mine, a bass player named Winston Roy, who had uh, become a, a dear friend of mine, uh, approached me sort of early on. I was playing a nightclub job down in, in the village, you know, just, it was a jam session. I was backing up, you know, whoever wanted to sit in basically. And I think I was probably making at least 50 bucks for the night. And I had just met Winston previous at a, at a networking function and he saw me play and he said, uh, on a break, he said, uh, Hey man, would you ever consider playing a Broadway show? I was like, I'm listening. Tell me more. <laughs> Winston was the bass player in a, a show called rock of ages which ran, you know, it was like the 80s hair rock musical, you know, hair yeah. metal musical that ran on Broadway for six and a half years, I think. So I became one of his subs, one of his deputies, and I, I subbed on that show, I think, 300 times. I think over the, over the course of the show, like I did probably 300 performances. So uh, I didn't really seek it out, but then once it found me, I was like, oh, well, are there other shows that I could sub on? And... One by one, you know, I sort of found them. I've done, I've done a dozen of them now over the last sort of 10 years. Um, everything is kind of shut down now, but the last one I was subbing on was the Temptations musical, Ain't Too Proud. Uh, mm -hmm. And I believe that one's coming back in October, if I'm not mistaken. So, you know, if everything goes well, maybe I'll be called to appear on Broadway yet again. But we'll, yeah. we'll have to see how it goes. So you never know. How would you, uh, how do you feel about, you know, Appearing on Broadway compared to, you know, a normal gig, normal concert. It, it's it's the same, but completely different, if you know what I'm right. saying. Like, you know, the Rock of Ages thing, part of the Rock of Ages thing was you're pretending to do a rock concert for a thousand people. That was sort of like the gig. The band was on stage. We're in makeup. We're in costume. You know, we're looking mm. like hair metal dirt bags. That was kind <laughs> of the part we were playing. And we had choreography and lines and the whole thing. So that felt very much like a gig, just the spontaneity is taken out of it because you're, 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 doing, you're doing a play, basically. So you have to yeah. sort of say the same things overnight, over and over again, every night. So there are other gigs that I've had where the band has been on stage. Hedwig was one. Uh, the band, uh, there's a Jimmy Buffett musical called Escape to Margaritaville that the band was sort of on this sled that was kind of roll out. And, you know, we, we were playing the part of like cabana musicians on <laughs> on this <laughs> resort island. So, I mean, that part of it feels sort of continuous with my other sort of work. The thing that doesn't feel as contiguous is when you're working in the pit, which is when you're underneath the stage, you know, sort of in a dark yeah. room with a, looking at a music stand. Um, and you know that your music's getting out there because you can hear sort of through the wall, you know, uh, there's a thousand people who are delighted with what you're doing, but you don't sort of have a direct line to them. You're, you're, you're playing on headphones. Spider-Man on Broadway, who's probably one of the most infamous shows on Broadway with the score written by Bono and the Edge, you know, um, the band was downstairs in the basement, down the hall in a, in a, in a room that was just like any generic office building with fluorescent lights and drop ceilings. 
Right. So we were all on on headphones. In fact, I should say the band was actually in two rooms. Like the rhythm section was in one room, and down the hall there was a, a, a like the orchestra room that had the strings and the horns and whatnot. Yeah. So we were all on headphones. Uh, we were in the same room with the conductor, uh, and the conductor was looking behind my head. There was a screen that showed the the stage, so she could see what was going on, on the stage and wave her baton and tell us where <laughs> we needed to go. But, you know the. It, it couldn't have been more, it was like, it wasn't even like doing a recording session, you know, but it, it was, it was so disconnected from the audience that it felt, it just felt odd. It felt odd. Yeah. But the, the pit gigs are kind of like that in a way, like, you know, your stuff's communicating. And especially if you get a chance to see the show from the house, you're like, oh yeah, no, the band is loud. Like they're hearing everything you're doing, but you kind of have to take it on faith because you're not, you're not on stage. You're not performing for anybody. Uh, you know, in Spider-Man, you didn't even, you know, like in the pit, if you're in a pit in a Broadway theater, in an old house, you have to wear all black because if they can see down in the pit, you just have to sort of be all, you know, in all black. But in Spider-Man, you could have done it in a fluorescent Speedo. It didn't matter. <laughs> like, you know, like nobody was going to see you do it. So you know, yeah. whatever you wanted to wear was fine. I can, I can imagine how strange a feeling it would be though, because as you were saying, you know, there's a disconnect from the audience. It's like they're hearing your music, but they might never know it's actually your music, if you know what I mean. It could have been anybody. Oh, 100%. You know, and, and a lot of people uh, have told me that they, they're they convinced that the that the orchestra is pre-recorded. Um, the, the Ain't Too Proud, uh, the Temptations musical, uh, I don't think I'm giving anything away, but at the end of the show for the finale, this, the entire cast is on stage, and then behind them a wall goes up, and the entire... 20 piece orchestra is on stage. We're all wearing white. We're all wearing uh, t uh, white tuxedo jackets and playing white instruments. And we're all performing choreography as well. So every time the wall goes up, the audience just like they lose their mind. Like, oh my God, this is live the whole time. <laughs> you know, like they can't imagine that we're just not holding props or, or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and and that's it happened on a couple of shows like that, you know, like, and, and it depends how far away, how remote you are from how disconnected you. Oh, I wanted, I know what I wanted to say. Uh, I did the Donna summer musical. I subbed on that for uh, probably, I don't know, 40, 40 performances a show uh, or so over the course of the run. And at the end of the, at the musical, the way they did the acknowledgement of the band was they had video screens drop down from the ceiling that showed the individual band members playing their parts, you know, which I thought was pretty cool and pretty nice. However, the video screen showed the picture of the person who had the regular chair, not the sub. So there, <laughs> right. there was no way that, you know, they, so, you know, I was subbing for a lady named Sharice, who's a tremendous player, really great, great person. But, you know, it would be Sharice's picture, you know, video on the screen, like playing the bass. You know, and then I would pop out the stage door and people were like, who are you? Are you a stagehand? Like, what are you? I'm like, yeah, I just played the show. Never mind. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm not in it for the glory and that's just fine. You know, we'll uh, get a bit more upbeat. So and speak about the best experience you've ever had while playing a concert. Well, I think on your uh, questionnaire, I gave you like maybe a top five best shows I've ever seen. Uh, it would be like uh, Sly and Robbie, the Tom Tom Club, Mother's Finest, uh, The Who, actually. So I got to see The Who in 82. It was amazing. Oh, man. Uh, the Neville Brothers, I would put on that list anytime. Um, as far as myself, sort of like some of these peak performances, you know, peak experiences I had, um, 
uh, like I said, I was music director with Sam Moore from Sam and Dave uh, on the road for like 13 years. And, and we played, you know, he's such a hero to so many people who then went on to become rock stars. So like mm. standing next to Sam, just I've gotten to meet Bono, The Edge, um, Springsteen, Sting, Elvis Costello, Paul Rogers, and on and on like these people and these people, you know, these, however big rock star Robert Plant, you know, was it one of the, came into one of the things, however big rock stars they are, whatever kind of ego they have, they have nothing next to Sam. Like come at him, you know, kneeling before him because he came before them and he's got this amazing instrument, this amazing first tenor. So occasionally he would have special guests sit in on his shows. So like we played the first uh, Obama inauguration uh, with uh, Sam Moore band special guest Elvis Costello and Sting. You know, I'm like, not too shabby for a night's work. Yeah. And Sting, that was the second or third time I think we seemed to sing. We, we've worked with him a few times with, with Sam. Uh, one of the things we got to do that night was we got to play uh, Message in a Bottle, backing him up. You know, he did a couple of songs. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know if I, I went through the exact playlist of my very first high school talent show ever when I was 17 years old, but one of the songs we played on that night was Message in a Bottle. So then like 27 years later, however <laughs> long it took, getting to play that on stage with the guy who wrote it and sang it was kind of like, it was very hard to sort of keep my wits about me and just, you know, do my job but like you know we were at rehearsal and he said i i said we we were told he was going to do message uh like as a solo guitar thing like he did famously on the secret policeman's other ball yeah. there's a recording of it he's kind of famous so we were told he's going to do that and, and um we rehearsed like every breath you take with him and i'd written a horn arrangement for it and everything which kind of made him go like what that's art but he loved it you know and then we got to the message and I said, do you want us to back you up on this one as well? He said, do you know? And I said, it's in C sharp, right? He said, yes, it is. And we ended up doing it. I was like, that was amazing. Amazing. I could imagine. Jeez. And then th there's another big one with Sam. I'll just say quickly that uh, we, we played the Tokyo Jazz Festival um, 2008, 2009, I think. I think we had a 15-piece band. We had like a big horn section, big vocal section, big rhythm section, 5,000 screaming Japanese people. And these are not people that are known to be emotive as a culture, you know, yeah. they were screaming effusive. <laughs> the thing was live on national television. The room was elevating. Like it was just like bouncing. The whole room was bouncing yeah. up, up and down in time to the music. And, and the fact that, that it also got recorded and videoed at the time, you know, it was just like, this is as good as it is ever going <laughs> to get, you know, mm. and thank God the cameras are running and the tape was running. It was great. Amazing. Yeah, that sounds like it'd be very hard to top. Yeah, indeed, <laughs> indeed. And it's okay, you know. It, you know, we, you 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 get to those experiences as they come. Like, there's no way to predict it was going to be like this yeah. career high of a night. I mean, we kind of knew going to the inauguration gig like that was going to be a big one. We knew, but even so, you, you don't really know how it's going to go. Yeah. Uh, and then when it when it then goes well, you're just like. All right, that one goes in the record books. And tomorrow night we're going to be playing, you know, a nightclub in Manhattan for <laughs> for three people. And that's the way it goes, you know, yeah. until the next time, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Would that be a, a perfect description of uh, what a working class rock star is then? I, I think so. I think so. You know, I, I learned this kind of early on because uh, early in my Bleecker Street days when I was, you know, playing the, the blues bars and all that kind of stuff, I remember a, a buddy of mine got the gig with uh, Enrique Iglesias. Right. And he was touring, playing in arenas, you know, so like it, it was like 15,000 
people every night, every night, every night. Uh, and then the next time I saw him was right back on Bleecker Street playing a $50 gig. And I was like, Men note to self, you know, like don't ever think that you sort of like have outpriced yourself out of a gig or that you're never going to, you know, I'm never coming here again mm. or that you're ever going to be too good for something like that. Because A, you're not, you're going to be, you know, every good gig is going to end eventually. And B, if you really love what you're doing, you really just want to play your stupid guitar, you know, and it doesn't really matter where I mean, it's nice if it's in front of 15,000 people, but it can be just as much fun to be, you know, at the red lion pub at, at three o'clock in the morning, you know, playing some sly stone covers can be a blast, you know? Yeah. Great. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You mentioned that you've, uh, you've played for a lot of, uh, rock and roll hall of famers but you also mentioned that you're a, a blues hall of famer yourself that must have been a pretty amazing experience it absolutely was i i wasn't i was way too young i thought to be a member of any hall of fame i was like this seems to be premature but i i understood why they do it you know uh it was run by uh at the time by a friend of mine named roxy perry who was very active in the new york blues scene and she was trying to get all of her her fellow musicians who were active in that scene recognized you know yeah so at that time i'd already backed up like rufus thomas and uh johnny copeland and uh shamika copeland and like i had all these legitimate sort of like high level blues gigs that that qualified me and i was like okay you know yes i will accept it and i'll be uh, i have the the certificates up on my wall somewhere over here you know it's a bowling trophy and uh, it looks good on a resume and I'm, I'm thrilled to be uh, a member of the class of 2011, whenever that happened, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I imagine there's some kids starting off playing bass, you know, and especially if they're into blues, if that's their, their jam, that's something they could be, you know, aiming for in the future. It could be like, I want to be in the blues hall of fame. You know, it's something that'll stick with you for the rest of your life. You'll be known for. It's, a, it's an amazing achievement. It, it, it is. And, and I kind of, it almost doesn't feel real to me because again, like I, it wasn't something that I was, you can't really set out to do that. Or, I mean, you can set out to do it, but the fact that you're going to actually make it there or not, hmm. it, it's impossible to say. Like when I started out playing, I knew, I knew for a fact I was going to be a jazz fusion bass player. I was going to be just like Stanley Clark and Jaco Pastorius, right? Hmm. None of that happened in my life. Not, <laughs> not one thing. I've certainly done fusion gigs, but I'm I'm not that kind of player. Those are not the 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 genres I've been employed in most. You know. Yeah. Um. And again, I, I mentioned before, like Stanley's an old friend of mine, so I've seen his bases. You know, I played his bases, and they're they're different setup. They're set up to do what he does. Mm. Like they're you know he can play really fast and really you know really high. Uh, and every time I play his bass, I'm like thinking like I can't. I can't get the strings to, to resonate the way I like them to, to, to play, you know, soul man or, yeah. or dancing in the streets or the things that I get paid to do. Yeah. So like I, I had to realize that, you know, sort of my thing is kind of Memphis Motown and Mardi Gras. Those are my things, hmm. you know, and the, and the, and the jazz fusion thing is not, even though I was, I was convinced I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do that. I'm going to move to New York and be a fusion guy. I'm like, <laughs> Nope, not at all. <laughs> We'll, um, we'll get slightly more personal now. If, um, if you could see any, now I know you've, you've met a lot of her heroes and you've played with a lot of heroes, but if you could see any performer or band from history, 
in concert for one night only, who would it be? Mm. Um, I think one of my greatest heroes who who died before I really ever got a chance to see him was uh, James Jamerson, the bass player at Motown. Right. And he was known mostly for being a studio performer and more than a live performer, but he certainly did tour with Marvin Gaye. So, and Marvin is another one. Like if I'd seen Marvin or Otis Redding, I never got to see Otis. Hmm. Um, but I remember like there's some video footage of James Jamerson playing bass live with uh, Marvin Gaye in Washington, D.C. Uh, they're, they're touring behind the What's Going On album. And it's just magical, like just to be able to have seen him do what he does, you know, with his really bizarre technique. You know, he played all those lines with just one finger hmm. for some reason. That's just the way he, he did things. But I really would have loved to have seen that in person and, and felt the air moving off of that amp. Yeah. You know. I remember seeing John Entwistle with The Who, and Entwistle was another sort of early hero of mine. And when I saw him, I'm standing right in front of him in a stadium. I worked my way all the way down front. And, you know, this wall of, of sun amplifiers and this alembic bass, and I could see his fingers and see what he was doing and feel the immediate, you know, pressure of the, off, the, off the stage, not even the PA, it was off the stage. You know, it really was informative as a player to sort of say, okay, okay, I see what that's going on. And, and to be able to have seen Jamerson do that, I think would have been a whole other, you know, musical gift. Yeah. I, I would have loved to have had. Yeah. That's the perfect word to describe. It would have been a gift, an experience Agreed. like that. And uh, if you could be, if you had to quarantine with an artist for 24 hours in a room, <laughs> just the two of you, who would it be? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think this is a situation where you, you have to really be careful about what you wish for, right. be careful about meeting your heroes. Cause I, you know, as, as much as I've had positive experiences meeting heroes, I've had negative ones too. So like, uh, you, you don't know what somebody's personality is necessarily, even if you love their art, their personality could be, they could be a really prickly kind of human mm -hmm. being. You don't, you don't, you just don't know. But if I had to guess, you know, somebody, uh, I don't know, Stevie wonder, Okay. Like just to be able to, to talk music with him, you know, I, I would think that we might have some, some people like, you know, cause I worked on the road for a year as music director with Martha Reeves and the Vandellas. So like we, we'd know some, we would know some people in common maybe, you know, and have some common experiences to talk about, which might be, you know, other something besides just being like, I'm a, I'm a fan. You're really great. <laughs> you know, which makes for an awkward conversation, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It'd be something he didn't hear every day, so it'd be a good opener for a conversation. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because I remember seeing a Zoom presentation over the quarantine. They were they were uh, they were honoring this uh, gentleman named Paul Reiser, who was one of the the arrangers at Motown. And Paul won a Grammy for doing the the arrangement for uh, Papa Was a Rolling Stone, for instance. You know, and he did so many so many things. And um, Ray Parker Jr., the guitar player, he was on the Zoom call. And he called Stevie Wonder right. during the call. He said, hey, man, we're on with Paul Reiser. And Paul was one of Stevie's heroes who was taught Stevie how to arrange, you know, when he was mm -hmm. 13 at Motown. So Stevie on, on uh, Ray Parker's phone, you know, he's holding his phone up to the Zoom. So like Stevie like chimes in, you know, just because he wanted to, to pay respects to, to his hero. So like, I feel like, 
I, I've met enough of those people that perhaps, you know, he and I would have something to talk about that would take us out of that, yeah. uh, the fan zone, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Speaking of meeting heroes, who has been your favorite person you've met? Oh, wow. I mean, I have so many, like, dear friends from doing it for so many years. Like, uh, anytime I see Jay Siegel with the tokens, the guy who sang The Lion Sleeps Tonight, you know, I, he just, he feels like family. Shirley Austin Reeves from the Shirelles. She's, like I said, my second mom. Sam Moore is like my second dad. Uh, I love Gary U.S. Bonds. I love, you know, just like... There's so many people that I've I've seen over the years in in different uh, situations. That any time I see them, Charlie Thomas from the Drifters, hmm. you know, I just feel like a personal connection with them. It's just it's a professional thing. We 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 appreciate each other's abilities. You know, they like that I play their show properly. You know, <laughs> and I love what they've done for American music. Yeah, no, it does help because they they use so many pickup bands and so many people who maybe didn't do enough homework. You know, so. Anytime they can just relax and just do their show and yeah. enjoy the audience, then suddenly, like, I'm their best friend. You know, like, you know, you guys are great. We love this band. We love you. Everything sounds great. And they're happy. Yeah. So there's just so many of those people that I, you know, um, Don Dixon and Marty Jones. Don's the great producer who did REM and the Smithereens. And, you know, like, these are just people like you just call up to just check in with personally after a while, you know, like, yeah. how's it going? Is everything cool? You know, I've been, I texted Stanley Clark uh, yesterday was his 70th birthday. Oh, man. You know, like he started so young and he's been doing it so long, but he's like, that's the kind of guy, you know, if you have a texting relationship with, you know, you're, you're pals, you know, that's a pal exactly. thing. It's not just, that's not a fan thing. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, if there was one song that had to appear on the soundtrack to your life, what would it be? Wow. There's so many. I was trying to sort of think about that and think about because it would kind of have to be something, a song that I have a personal relationship and maybe a song that I've even sort of enjoyed playing, you know, as well as listening to. And for me, like my two, my sort of maybe two, I can narrow it down to one, but I, I can give you the sort of in order. Like one sort of my favorite song to play with uh, Martha Reeves and the Vandellas was Nowhere to Run, Nowhere to Hide. Right. Great Motown bassline that just was a, just the high point of me for the show every night, and and probably the one if I had to narrow it down to one, it would be "I Thank You" by Sam and Dave. So it was like you know, which also got famously covered by ZZ Top. But the bassline is just it's a it's a two note bassline. It's just an octave, and it just sits, it percolates and bubbles in his pocket so beautifully. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the lyric is kind of sweet, too. It's like, you didn't have to shake it like you did, like you did, like you did. But you did, and I thank you. You know, it was like, it's all, it's all kind of positive. It's slightly suggestive. It's slightly, you know, slightly dirty. Uh, and it's just, it's just so much fun. So every time I hear the song and every time we play the song, I'm just, it just makes me happy. So, yeah, put that one on repeat and I'll be good. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. Is there a, a message you'd like to leave the listeners with? You know, I don't know. I'm, it's funny. I don't, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm a weird one to get caught giving advice to anyone, but, but I have been doing it a long time. So uh, people do ask me, it's like, how do you get into show business? How do you meet these people? How do you do it? And, uh, you know, I, I say only half jokingly, if you can do anything else, do that. <laughs> because show business 
can be really like, you know, just enormous amounts of heartbreak. Like mm. you have to really have an appetite for eating crap. You have to eat a lot of crap to get to the moments where you can really, you know, express yourself and enjoy yourself. Um, I ran out of options. Like my, I was in a, had a music business career and I, and I finally just kind of hit the wall. I said, I don't want to do this anymore. So I, I wanted to be a musician and I really didn't want to do anything else. So once I made that decision and I was kind of realizing like, that's a tough, that's a tough one. Hmm. Then that's when I went back to music school, make sure all my, my ducks were in a row, learned my craft and got and worked hard enough to whereby when the opportunities did come, then I was able to step into the breach, you know, step yeah. into them. So like you have to sort of have enough of your skill set together to be able to answer the call when the opportunity does knock. So that would sort of be any advice I would give to people if they're, if they're asking, not that anybody asks. <laughs> no, that's great advice. That's great advice. Very helpful as well to any budding musicians. Yeah. Cheers. And uh, where would be the best place to find your music, your book, if anyone wants to find out more about you? Absolutely. Well, uh, my music is all at colorred, color-red.com. Uh, that's a label out of uh, Colorado run by um, the new Master Sounds, if you remember those guys. Um, it's a tremendous label. And I'm just so, that was one of the things, that, one of the good things that came out of quarantine. I was doing so much for home recording that they asked me to put out my records on their label. I was like, great, that's fantastic. Uh, and then the book is available on Amazon in, in I think, every every territory. Um, uh, you can get uh, all the links to everything at my website, which is funkboy, F-U-N-K-B-O-Y dot net, funkboy dot net. It'll take you to Amazon. It'll take you to my website. It'll take you to all the social medias, all that kind of stuff. So it's all available through my website. But, yeah, it's um, things are around on the web to find if you're if you're curious at all. Perfect. Perfect. Well, I want to say a big thank you for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've thoroughly enjoyed this this conversation. Pleasure is entirely mine. I really appreciate you having me. I appreciate you spreading the word. I appreciate being, being passionate about music and willing to talk to me about it because clearly that's all I care about. <laughs> you know, my whole life is uh, and and thinking about going to rock concerts and collecting vinyl. That's what I've been doing my whole life. So yeah. this has been a real, a real pleasure. Pigs feet and potted meat. Pigs feet and potted meat. Pigs feet and potted meat. Pigs feet and potted meat.
Hey, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you did, why not reach out and let us know? You can find us on all social media. Just search for Concerts That Made Us Podcast. And also, be sure to check out our website at www.concertsthatmadeus.com. That's the best place to stay up to date on everything that is Concerts That Made Us. Until next week, keep rocking. 